this week on the Backtable Podcast. Yeah, so, so as an interventionist, I think you know what works for you. You have your recipe, you know, to make the omelet. And I think you learn over time what works and what doesn't work. And, and you know how to keep things safe. And everybody goes through that process. So, so the fellows that might be listening to this podcast, I will tell you, you know, not everything you learn in fellowship is what you're going to do when you finally get out and practice. Definitely learn um, what to do, but also learn what not to do. Learn from the mistakes. And you're going to make plenty of them. And, and even today, I still do. So every day is a school day here in Austin. So <laughs> we're definitely not, uh, we're definitely not, not done with learning at this point. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform or our website, backtable.com. You can find us on socials like Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and keep up with the latest updates. And please, please give us feedback through comments. We love hearing from you. This discussion is supported by Shockwave Medical, developer of intravascular lithotripsy or IVL which uses sonic pressure waves to fracture superficial and deep cardiovascular calcium. IVL is delivered on a low-pressure PTA platform and is indicated for a broad range of interventions from the iliac arteries to the pedal arch, including calcified iliofemoral vessels to facilitate large-bore access. Across multiple studies and vessel beds, IVL's intuitive platform and unique mechanism has demonstrated results that are predictably safe, distinctively intuitive, and consistently effective. Learn more at shockwavemedical.com. I'm Sabine Dond, an IR from LA, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Mazen Fote from Cardiothoracic and Vascular Surgeons in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Mazen. Sabine, thank you for having me this uh, afternoon. I'm glad to be here, and I'm very excited to talk about this exciting new space and you know the arterial system that uh, has always sort of been off limits to us and. Hopefully we can dive, dive deep into the topic and talk about some new technologies that we're getting to use in that space, but I'm just so excited to be here today. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, honestly, you know, we're going to be talking about standard and non-standard approaches to common femoral, common femoral disease. And, you know, it was important to me and it was important to us to select someone who's well-versed in both, you know, um, both open and endo because someone talking who only does endo or someone only who does open, it's, it's inherently going to be really, really biased. And, uh, I'm uh, super excited pick your brain and really kind of know the benefits of both and, and kind of see where things are going in the future. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about, I mean, were you always in Austin? I mean, what, what made you go over there to an awesome city? <laughs> yeah. So um, I did my fellowship training at UT Southwestern in Dallas. I, I actually did my general surgery residency there as well, and then stayed on for vascular. Uh, so in total, I, I guess I was there for seven years. You grow up in, uh, in Texas? Yeah, I grew up in Texas, grew up in, in Houston, actually. And okay. uh, all my family still lives there. Uh, interestingly nice. enough, I'm the only person in my family who doesn't live in Houston. Uh, so oh, really? so yeah. you, made, you made the trek out, trek out I, to Austin. <laughs> yeah. But Austin's kind of like a suburb of Houston yeah. at this point. Um, but, but to your point, it's a great city. Uh, yeah. and, uh, I, I wasn't particularly looking for Austin when we're searching for jobs, but, uh, I got a, a phone call one day from one of the partners in the group. They actually called my program director 
and they were looking for somebody. And uh, I was fortunate enough to train at Southwestern where we had two really aggressive endo guys, Carlos Timuron and uh, Frank Arco. And I, I learned so much from them and they were actually looking for somebody who had a lot of endovascular experience. So I uh, came down here uh, a after a difficult case actually and uh, interviewed Jeez. and it was great. And I've That's been here cool. now 10 years. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm tickled to the, as, as can be, you know, this has yeah. been a, a great job for me and I have the, the greatest partners and I feel the, uh, one of the best cities in the United States to work in. So I'm, I'm very happy. Do you guys associate with a lot of hospitals or how does, I mean, 20 plus surgeons is a lot. So yeah. is it a big surgical center or how does it work? Yeah. So we are, um, a private practice and we work in both hospital systems here in Austin. Um, one is an cool. Ascension system and the other is HCA. Um, we work in basically, uh, three settings, um, in hospital, inpatient hospital, outpatient hospital. And then we have OBLs is where we'll, where we do cases. All of us sort of rotate through all the different hospitals here. Um, right now we're covering nine facilities. Um, so wow. it's, it's very, very busy, but luckily we, we have great partnerships with the hospitals. We get along very well. Um, I think we get along pretty well with all the subspecialties also. And, um, you yeah. know, there's, there's no turf wars. There's no turf wars, which I think is right. unique about this city. Yeah. We don't, um, we don't go after other subspecialties who do peripheral work where, you know, I've, I've heard of that happening in other locations. Yeah. Um, yeah. we tend to be pretty friendly and, um, we all have complications and sometimes, you know, uh, Sabine, sometimes I'm going to need your help and yeah. sometimes yeah. you're going to need my help. And it always goes I, both ways. Yeah. It always goes both ways. And Behind closed doors, you'll probably complain about it, uh, <laughs> but uh, nah. when it comes down to patient care, uh, yeah. the end of the day, you, you just got to take care of the patients. Totally. So, so we've, we've really taken that approach and, and it's been fortunate for us, I would say. Yeah, no, that's, that's really great. I mean, um, you obviously have such a big uh, a vascular practice. How much is it, would you say, broken down by open or endo? Oh, you personally? Yeah. So I've been in, in a transition since I've been here. Um, when I came in, you know, I was the new guy and the new guy is always sort of doing the most minimally invasive thing that you can do. And that yep. was endo. And, uh, quite honestly, um, at one point in my practice, I was probably 90% endo. Uh, that was in all aspects that included the aortic disease, carotids, peripheral vascular work. And then you learn over time what really works where. <laughs> and, uh, I would say today, uh, that has shifted to where I'm probably still about 70% endo and 30% mm -hmm. of my cases get done endovascularly mm -hmm. or some hybrid, uh, sorry, I should some say hybrid. that again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, 70, so 70, 70 endo, 30. And 30 open, and then there's some hybrid work that gets yeah. done as well. But, but you just, you just learn, you know, you just learn what's going to work where and you have to be adept in, in both, both areas. And, and that way we get to tailor care. And I, I yeah. really enjoy doing that. What's awesome is like you said, you tag team cases and you learn. I mean, the thing is, is you learn after training, you know, I, I'm lucky to be within, you know, some awesome IRs and, and vascular surgeons here. And I learned so much, you know, you know, even now, seven years after, you know, I've been done with training. So, you know, you've learned probably plenty of things on the job. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I, I, I used to sort of giggle a little bit when one of my mentors would say, 
you know how I got so good at endo? And uh, I said, no. He said, I used to actually go in and sit in the cardiology cath lab and watch them do STEMIs. And I was like, <laughs> no way. I mean, yeah. this guy had, you know, an ego beyond egos. Yeah. And, uh, and truth be told, um, you know, at the VA, when I was in Dallas, uh, I did a little of that as well. There was two cardiologists there, but they were just fantastic. And, and I learned micro wire and micro catheter skills, uh, watching those guys. Yeah. So it was, it was great. And, and I encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, don't think, you know, everything cause you don't, you just uh -huh. don't. And there's so much to be learned from IR. There's so much to be learned from cardiology. There's so much to be learned from neurointerventional. And mm -hmm. take the time to sit back and watch when you have some downtime because it, it could help you one day. Yeah. Words of wisdom. Words of yeah. wisdom. So let's talk about our topic. You know, let's get at it. You know, acute common femoral disease, we're not even going to talk about. We know, you know, all of us have been there, closure device injury or some iatrogenic injury. That's that's surgical. Um, and, and, and as far as the technique, we'll cover. But we're going to be talking about chronic disease. What, what type of patients, um, as in, do you see get pretty bad chronic common femoral diseases? Is it the diabetics? Are it the smokers? Is there any type of pattern? Yeah, I think there are some patterns here. And uh, let's, let's take out of the picture the folks who have had multiple access, you know, points in their common femoral arteries. And let's just like focus on primary, you know, atherosclerosis and who presents with common femoral disease. And truly it's, it's smokers. smokers. Those are the folks who are going to get aortoiliac occlusive disease and common femoral disease. And, and on occasion, you know, you might encounter your diabetics or your end-stage renal patients who have some common femoral disease. But in general, those folks are going to be free from uh, atherosclerotic plaque and, and the common femoral distribution. So it's usually younger patients. Um, it's usually heavy smokers. And uh, they typically get dense calcific disease in the common femoral artery. And those are the folks that we are commonly approaching. Okay. Yeah, was, that's what I was going to ask you. What's the morphology? Is it usually calcified? Is it atherombitis? I mean, what do you most commonly encounter in these, in these smokers? Yeah, so generally less atherombitis and more calcified uh, sort of homogenous plaque or heterogeneous plaque in the uh, in the uh, common femoral artery. And um, typically speaking, when you open these vessels up to do an endarterectomy, you're not going to see uh, the cauliflower appearance <laughs> of, you know, dense calcified disease. It's usually layers and layers of calcium and lipid deposits and platelet deposits encased in a fibrin sheet. And over time, as that lipid deposit and platelet deposit increases, luminal patency and luminal diameter tends to decrease over time. And so when we do endarterectomies, when it's completed, we have this nice, you know, sort of five to six centimeter long lesion. Mm -hmm. And if you turned it on end and looked straight down the center, you got one to two millimeters of flow, typically speaking. Yeah. And so removing it, particularly in lung pa young patients, works really well. And as you know, the, the beauty of that is, is that's a pretty durable operation. Mm -hmm. Thinking back in the last 10 years, I actually can't think of a patient where I've had to go back and do a repeat intervention on a common femoral uh, for a young patient as long as it was done well. Mm -hmm. um, I know it does happen, but you know, nothing directly comes to mind. But 
But you know, to good. get back to your question, you know, these are just, it's just a different animal. You know, it's, it's not like what you see in tibial disease and it's certainly not what you see in the SFA. It's just a completely different animal. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm always amazed. Um, you know, we're so used to, as, as for endovascular guys, we're, we're so used to seeing what it looks like on ultrasound or maybe IVUS or CT. And I always get amazed. Just this last week, we did a, you know, cut down approach for an EVAR with our vascular surgeon and the common femorals were just, they were just so jacked. But it was just so amazing to see what the artery, it just it looked like an artery, it looked a little regular and touch it and it just feels it's not a, it doesn't feel like a rock, but it doesn't feel, it just feels like this like really kind of just firm kind of vessel that's just not normal. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing to see it physically. It's, it's way different than what you'd expect. Absolutely. And, and, you know, unfortunately, I think ultrasounds and CT scans sometimes are just really great suggestions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, to your point, I was doing a case yesterday, actually, uh, an EVAR on a patient and we did it percutaneously. And, um, you know, I was a little bit worried about the right side. So, uh, before continuing with the EVAR, I went up and over and took some pictures and I found a big 90% stenosis below my access point, you know, so I, I did all the right things and, you know, I went ahead and crossed it from the other side. I removed my sheath. I ballooned it. I took a picture after the sheath went back in and it looked beautiful. And despite all that, at the end of the K, no flow, yep. no flow. And um, the only, uh, interestingly, when I do my EVARs, I always do them with SSEP. And mm -hmm. um, within minutes of pulling the sheath, uh, the tech reached out and said, hey, Dr. Fote, I'm, I'm losing signals here. And so uh, I immediately cut down and God, it was just such a, a horrible <laughs> vessel that you would have never appreciated on CT on or ultrasound. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it can definitely hide some snake yeah. within those yeah. thick walls. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now there's something we would do. We'd almost see like drive-by common femoral disease, meaning, you know, the patient has multi-station disease, SFA disease, tibial disease. There's common femoral disease. And a lot of times we kind of just pass by it endovascular and treat the SFA and tibial and um, we kind of just see, okay, let, let's see if we even have to treat the CFA disease. So the question I'm getting here is when do you have to treat common femoral disease? Because sometimes you treat all that and the patient gets better. Yeah, no, I, I've been there too myself. And um, oftentimes, for instance, if you have a tight iliac or a uh, SFA occlusion and even in the setting of common femoral disease and, and you leave the common femoral alone, most people are going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. where it's really critical for us to treat the common femoral are, are several scenarios. And, and these are the ones that are coming immediately to mind. But if at any point the profunda femoris artery is going to be compromised or is, is prone to being compromised because the common femoral disease is so significant, to me, it, it oftentimes, you know, means I should preemptively try to treat that, that common femoral. Okay. If there is a bypass graft below the common femoral that is necessitating inflow, uh, that's somebody I think that should be treated. If there's an SFA dent that you're worried potentially has the ability to go down if you don't treat it, um, okay. I would definitely think about doing it as well. And then on the flip side, in the superior disease, 
if you do stent the iliacs or if you balloon the external, but you leave a 90% common femoral stenosis, I mean, that's not yeah. going to do anybody any good. Mm-hmm. So it, it tends to be an, an underappreciated artery. Um, there have been many scenarios where the operation I will offer is, is just a common femoral artery endarterectomy in somebody who has multi-level disease. And more often than not, especially for claudicants, that's what gets them better. And you don't have to treat the SFA and you don't have to treat the tibials and they can go on and have productive lives. So it, it's just something you should really focus on and take some time appreciating. You know, now everybody's trying to switch their access points, going to tibial, going to <laughs> radial, <laughs> forgetting about the common femoral artery. And, you know, there's this saying, uh, I think it was uh, Julius Caesar or one of those uh, Roman Roman kings <laughs> or that uh, don't forget your dying king. And, and the truth <laughs> is the common femoral artery, I mean, we should respect it. We've been using yeah. it for such a long time and we shouldn't let it go by the wayside. But we also need to, I need to understand you can't leave a lot of bad disease in there. It's, it's going to pretend a bad outcome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the endarterectomy, the surgical approach to common femoral disease. I mean, you've already mentioned that durability. I mean, it's, it's, it's by far very durable. I mean, what, what are things, I know it hasn't happened to you, but what are things that do make it, you know, you have a recurrent disease in the patch or whatnot. What, what are some things that can cause that? Yeah. So there's, there's a number of things. Um, one thing you mentioned is the patch, right? So uh, there are still people out there who don't patch common femorals after doing endarterectomy. It's mm. similar to doing CEA. There's still people out there who just do uh, endarterectomy and then primarily close the, uh, the carotid artery. Um, so if you don't patch it, I think that puts you at risk for restenosis. There's also a subset of patients who I think have inflammatory atherosclerotic disease. And um, those folks, they tend to scar no matter what you do. And despite doing a clean mm-hmm. endarterectomy and, and not they'll leaving, you, you know, they'll scar down and, and you'll be back. Um, and then I think the other thing is, is when you're doing your endarterectomy, it's important to leave some of the media behind when you're okay. getting into the layers to remove the plaque. If you take it all the way down to the adventitia, and you remove all of the media, I think that leaves a very, very hyperplastic uh, tissue bed and puts you at risk for restenosis. So uh, it's important to make sure you stay in the right tissue planes as well. How hard is that to do? I mean, to to separate when you're there, the intima versus media versus, versus adventitia, are you able to actually tell uh, the different layers? Generally, yes. Generally, you're, you're able to get into a well-defined plane and, um, and it works out well for, for you to be able to do that. But there are scenarios where this, the disease is so bad or it's exiophytic, you know, calcium that embeds itself even into the adventitia that you just simply can't make a good tissue plane. And those are the folks that I think that you end up, instead of patching, you end up doing ileophytic femoral bypasses as opposed to doing endarterectomies. But it's an operation, I think, that um, doesn't get a lot of credit. You Mm -hmm. know, people think it's just so easy to do and uh, and the recovery is so easy. But but I think we also underestimate the complications that occur with that surgery. Uh, There was a huge Nisquip, you know, paper that came out back in 2008, looking at 75,000 endarterectomies that were done over a 10-year period. (laughs) 
And, uh, you know, the, the readmission rate, uh, for that, for that procedure was 15%. The complication rates were as high as 20 to 30%. And typically speaking, I mean, these patients, you know, pretty, pretty routinely will come back either with lymphocytes, they'll come back with uh, groin incisions that are broken down. They'll come back with hematomas, uh, chronic pain and, and readmissions. It's to not the hospital. that, but not, it's not completely, you know, you know, benign. no, not by any means. Not by any, in fact, that, that paper actually, the, that uh, population did have a mortality rate, a perioperative mortality rate of, of about one to 2%. So, um, although rare, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not without its complications. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 75,000 is a big number. So, you know, you're going to find stuff, but that, I mean, it's, it's important to know that these type of procedures do that they're not as easy as sometimes some people may say they are. Yeah. What about in your technique? I mean, we won't go into, in all techniques of what do you exactly do, but do you do anything other differently? You mentioned that you patch all of yours and you go to the media, but anything else you particularly do that makes your endarterectomy approach, um, pretty successful? Yeah. So, um, first off, um, you're going to run into surgeons out there who like to either do a longitudinal incision versus a, a, uh, medial groin crease incision. And really for an endarterectomy, I think a medial groin incision doesn't, um, doesn't really allow you to expose everything very nicely. Uh, so I always do it longitudinally. I always go out very far on the tertiary, uh, secondary and tertiary branches of the profunda femoris. Okay. I always go about three or four centimeters into the SFA with my endarterectomy, and I never leave anything behind in the external iliac. In fact, if I'm not able to reach it from my surgical approach, that patient more often than not is going to get an external iliac stent just to ensure I leave no disease behind sort of taking that extra time and ensuring that three to four uh, centimeters proximal and three to four centimeters distal to your common femoral, the arteries are nice and clean. You're not leaving dissection planes behind. It's key to really having a great outcome for those folks. Yeah. I mean, I can see now why you have such a good endarterectomy result because you're definitely putting more into it than I've seen, you know, doing the proximal three CM of SFA. That's a lot more dissection. I mean, I, I've been there in these cases where the vascular surgeon is dissecting and, and yeah, if you, you can do a lot more, but it takes a lot more time. So definitely, you know, dissecting three branches of the profunda, that's, that's a lot, you know, <laughs> it, it gets to be a lot, it gets to be a lot, but, but truthfully, you know, even if you have to use two patches mm-hmm. uh, and sew them together, it's, it's the right thing to do. And, um, it improves outcomes and. The patients will love you for it is, is what I can tell you. Now, there's there's a lot of people who, I, I'm sure you do most of these under general anesthesia. I mean, there, there are sometimes we see some claims as far as like, oh, these procedures can be done under local or whatnot. Is that is that a common occurrence, Some you know, doing it under under local or, or is it pretty much all always under heavy sedation, MAC or, or, or general? Yeah, I think it's, Definitely something that gets talked about doing it under uh, less um, less severe anesthesia is what I would say. In the yeah. 10 years that I've been in this practice, in my fellowship, um, in my general surgery training, 
I never saw a common femoral end arterectomy get done under local. Yeah. The closest thing uh, to a a less than general anesthesia was um, a couple of MAT cases where the patient <laughs> got an yeah. LMA. But for the most part, I mean, these these can be fraught with complications too. Um, sometimes yeah. getting control can be very difficult. And sometimes there's a significant amount of blood loss. I, I think it's it's a nice academic discussion to talk about doing un under local. But when the rubber hits the road, very few of these cases actually get done at a local. Yeah, you need them. You need them to be asleep. I mean, and I'm actually very impressed with the anesthesiologists. They, they can put anyone to sleep. I mean, you know, the, the whole thing these about days, all this. Yeah, I mean, they're yeah. so good. I mean, the patient can have a EF of 15 and they're like, okay, it's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll handle it. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, they, uh, they make our lives really, really yeah. easy. And um, to your point, you know, even folks with horrible COPD and on home oxygen, I mean, these anesthesiologists these days do such a good job and yeah, mine have been excellent. Uh, yeah. that I, I feel comfortable putting most people to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, your anesthesiologist is so used to your vasculopath patients that, you know, cardiac and all this other stuff is, 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 is easy chip shots for them. So it's, it's lucky we have anesthesiologists like this. And so when I see that argument of online on social media, sometimes like, a, a endovascular person might say, oh, we did it this way because the patient couldn't tolerate anesthesia. I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe shop around for some anesthesiologists and, and, and do what's best for the patient, whether it's open or surgical. And on that, so let, let's, let's switch gears and talk about the endo approach. I mean, should we stop now? Is there validity to endovascular approach to uh, CFA disease? Um, should we stop or do you think there's validity in that? No. So, um, so first of all, this is and a topic that's very important to me. I know it's a topic that's very important to you. And uh, the common femoral artery has sort of always been the uh, no man's zone for endovascular intervention. Yeah. And uh, we've, over the years, have tried everything from cryoplasty to atherectomy to drug-coated balloons to stenting, you name it, we've tried it. And, and, and of late, um, and I, I know we're going to get into it, but lithotripsy as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, to date, there, there really hasn't been a great useful tool to address calcific disease. Not, not one that can really affect the entire calcific lesion. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the atherectomy devices out there have the ability to, to get into the intimal calcium. Some can even cause microfracturation in the medial layer but none of them have the ability to get into the deeper layers of the calcium four and even six millimeters deep in order to have a great effect on the vessel. And so, you know, prior to the last couple of years, I think you included just have been a little bit disappointed with the outcomes from common femoral and intervention. And so we didn't do it for a long time. And um, today though, I think, the uh, the tide is shifting. I think we now have some tools out there that seem to be much more effective for that particular artery and are performing much better over time. And I think the uh, the avenue for endovascular approaches are getting better. Mm -hmm. Some things that I think have improved as well is you know having different alternative access points has made it a little bit easier for us to do. That's true. I mean, you don't you don't have to stick the common femoral now. To, yeah, to, you, you know, 
yeah, yeah, you can avoid it, you know, so, so it makes it a lot easier for us to be able to treat these folks. So I guess to answer your question, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, I would have told you absolutely not. Yeah. Common yeah. femoral endarterectomy is the way to go. But for the past two years, I think my, my mindset has changed a little bit. So let's talk about the, you know, there's, there's two types of CFA chronic disease, right? Something that's still open. Like you mentioned that, that nasty disease with a two millimeter, you know, open lumen or a, and a total occlusion. But how about, you know, this, this nasty disease, what are some of the tools now that you can use, um, as long as the CFA is open to help you with this, with this chunky calcium lipid layer, you know, plaque. So the, the tool that I've been using of late and, and I know you're aware of it is actually shockwave lithotripsy mm-hmm. yeah. and shockwave has now been available, um, in the U S I believe close to five years. Yep. Initially, you know, it was being used in the SFA and then, and the tibials and then eventually the iliacs and now the coronary. And, mm-hmm. um, over time, you know, once you start using this technology, you start to figure out places where you think it'll work really well. We, we learned over time that it, it actually can be very beneficial in the common femoral distribution. I mean, this is a disease bed that typically is not soft plaque, that mm-hmm. typically is dense calcified disease and uh, doesn't respond to our standard therapies. Uh, doing balloon angioplasty will not work. Um, doing straight up drug coated balloons in this area also will not work due to the dense calcium and the lack of penetration. I've done that where I just do a, a conventional, like a POBA on a CFA. And I'm like, I, I didn't do any, I, I try to convince myself the post angio is better. I'm like, yeah, cool. You know, yeah. but it's not, it's, it's literally, you know, maybe 5% better when, when I've used a seven millimeter balloon, but it doesn't do anything like. And it's yeah. different when you use some other devices, for example, Shockwave. Yeah, I think Shockwave has that ability uh, to crack the calcium, change the compliance in the vessel, and ultimately improve luminal gain, which is really what we want. And to date, I think I've used it in pretty much all applications of the common femoral. So the short eccentric lesions, the mm-hmm. long calcified lesions, the occlusions. Okay. Pretty much every aspect of common femoral disease um, that you think you can use it in, I, I've done it. And so, and so I know where it works well now, and it's a viable technology. It's one that I think in the future uh, may actually be a go-to first for the common femoral. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and lots of reasons for that too. Now, are you using it, you mentioned it to, to soften the plaque. Are you using it as an adjunctive technique as far as to change the compliance and that and then do something else like dcb or a stent or are you using it solely by itself and seeing what the post result is yeah so i think there's there's two avenues for me uh one of which is just using shockwave alone and then the other avenue is to use shockwave in combination with the dcb in today, not somebody who's going to stent a common febrile. Okay. Um, not right now. Um, I don't think there's good enough data to support that. You're not throwing in, superas and all those. You know. <laughs> not <laughs> just, yet. Just, yeah. Not yeah. yet. But, you know, I, I know we're going to get into this a little bit, but um, that's not a part of my practice right now. Okay. But, but I tend to treat it basically two ways um, as a sole therapy. 
And mm-hmm. if I get a great result from that, um, then I'm comfortable and I leave it alone. If I get a suboptimal result, or if it's a patient who I simply never want to bring back to the operating room or cath lab, then I think it's, it's a good idea to use an adjunctive technology like a DCB to hopefully give you more durable patency over time. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty much how I approach it. Now, in your experience, has this ever burned a bridge um, as far as going in surgically after you've done a therapy? Like, say it didn't work that well. Are you already prepping the groin for potentially doing an open approach? Or, or you plan for that later? And then does it mess you up at all? Does it, me- does it make it more infl- inflammatory? To, you know, like when you postplasty a vein, then that vein becomes really crappy and you don't want to do surgery on it. Is that the same thing that happens on the common femoral? So no, not really. Um, you know, so I've, 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 at, I've been asked two questions. One, does it make it worse? Uh, do, mm-hmm. do you somehow compromise what you can do down the road? And then two, does it make what you do down the road any easier? And the answer to both is no. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, you know, uh, it, it definitely doesn't burn any bridges. I've never had an embolic event. I've never had an acute occlusion. I've never had anything where I felt like the lithotripsy balloon was the source of that complication. Uh, but then on the flip side, if even if I were to cross and I were to treat and I were to open the vessel, um, when I go back to do an endarterectomy down the road, it didn't make it harder, but it also didn't help it okay. either. You know, okay. um, I've had, I've had uh, device reps ask, well, is the calcium softer at that point? Well, you know, maybe, but either way. It doesn't feel like a rock. Again, like when you go in there, you don't feel, I don't know, at least the ones I've felt and and I've felt way less than you. Yeah. They don't feel like, I expected when I first saw this, I expected to like feel a rock or something, but it's like, you know, calcium is rubbery. (laughs) Well, well, I, you know, it depends what you encounter. Um, So I've definitely had scenarios where the artery was so rock hard, I couldn't even place clamps. Oh, wow. You know, because I, I couldn't yeah, occlude okay. the vessel. And uh, and in fact, there have been scenarios where it was so densely calcified. When I placed a clamp, what happened was is the calcium tore the artery oh, um, as, Whoa. you know, through the intima into the adventitia. I mean, I've definitely had scenarios wow. like that as well. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. So it, it could be it could be quite a challenge. But truthfully, Sabine, I mean. There have been there have been many scenarios where I've done common femoral artery occlusions. I've treated it with lithotripsy. The vessel has stayed open. Yeah. And maybe one to two years down the road, there might be a restenosis and I have to do a common femoral endarterectomy. But then when I get him to the OR, the vessel's still open. Yeah. Yeah. Still that's, open. That's great. You I know. mean, to me, that's a testament to a great end result without the open incision and all that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're in the right you know, on direction occasion, compared to 10, you know, yeah. 10 years ago. But I mean, like on occasion, you're treating somebody for rest pain or you're treating somebody for yeah. tissue loss. And w- and the only thing you find is a common femoral artery occlusion. And you cross that occlusion and you lithotripsy it, the vessel stays open, the patient's rest pain disappears or the gangrene heals. If they're a young patient, maybe you send them to your surgeon and say, hey, this worked. I'm worried it's not going to last a long time. Could you do a preemptive endarterectomy for you? I think that's a great scenario. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
I think this tool gives you the option of not having to back out either. So if yeah. you encounter that, you know, in, in, a, in a tough scenario, now you at least have an option of treating somebody. Exactly. That's true. That's good. You still can do something. And then it's really important that that was one of my big questions. Do, do I, you know, burn a bridge or compromise a surgery after if I'm doing something like this? And in your experience, you don't. And, and that's huge. I think that's, a, that's a huge take home point. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, one other point we should make from that is that, you know, if you're an interventional radiologist or if you're a cardiologist, don't let anybody tell you that that's going to happen either. Yeah. I know you can remember this, you know, five years ago when we started getting really aggressive with tibials, the first thing all the surgeons yeah. said was, oh, they're going to burn all of our bypass bridges. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. We're not going to be able to do a bypass now. I mean, well, yeah, if you stent the entire vessel, you're not going to be able to do a bypass. <laughs> yeah. But if you go in there and you balloon a, a PT or an AT, you're going to be able to bypass the patient. And truthfully, you know, as somebody who was very aggressive, I, I had some of my partners tell me, you know, when I got aggressive with tibials, well, you know, hey, you know, you're going to create a lot of bypasses for us. And I said, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, maybe <laughs> you're right, but I don't think so. And, uh, and luckily that yeah. hasn't been the case. That's that great. really has not been the case. So yeah. the same is true for the common femoral artery. You can yeah. balloon it. You can do atherectomy. You can do lithotripsy. The only thing I would say is right now in a young patient, if you can avoid it, don't stent it. That's okay. all I'm saying. That's a good, that's a good, cause you know, there are people who, you know, interval in superior stents, they say, okay, you can, uh, you know, stent across the CFA and, and I know there's data out there and whatnot, but it just does sound, you know, I mean, I mean, one of the things I want to talk about was the profunda, right? I mean, we're talking about CFA. There's, there's no way we can't talk about the profunda. I mean, how, have you had any plaque shift ever when you've, when you've post-plasty this, have you compromised the profunda? You know, obviously when you stent, you're going to stent across it. So that's, that's a big, you know, potential yeah. issue, but any issue with, with your current, you know, possible IVL DCB approach to CFA. So I think one thing you, you definitely have to be comfortable with if you're going to do common femoral disease interventionally, that I mean, is you have to get comfortable with being able to protect the profunda. Okay. Whether that means um, putting a, a separate buddy wire in the profunda while you're doing your intervention, whether that means doing a tibial access so you can have one wire across the common femoral retrograde and one wire into the profunda integrate, you got to protect that artery. Have I had a plaque shift myself uh, doing lithotripsy alone? No, I haven't. And But I think that's because we approach the common femoral in a stepwise manner. Yeah. Uh, if the plaque is completely free of the bifurcation, we don't worry. We don't uh, individually um, wire each vessel. But if there was any ever co a concern, we take that extra step and we just do it. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and it's been great for us. And as you know, um, oftentimes you have to do that anyway because there's spillover disease. So the ostium of the profunda, the ostium of the SFA, truthfully, that's that's the common femoral artery right there. And, and you just have to take care of all the disease. And that means doing lithotripsy in the profunda as well as the SFA. So 
So no, it's never happened. It is of concern. And, and I do think you need to be careful when you're doing these types of cases because that can happen. Uh, but but to date, is, I think as long as you're careful, you can do it safely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And yeah, and he, you did mention too, you haven't had an embolic event. And so you're not typically using filter devices when you're, when you're treating the CFA via an endo approach, correct? That's correct. I mean, in, in the last 10 years, I've, I've never put a filter for common femoral disease, even in, in scenarios where we were doing atherectomy. Uh, we've learned so much in the last decade where I feel like, uh, although filters are a great safety net, to me, they tend to cause more problems than actually yeah. provide any solutions. Yeah, and now, yeah, I mean, now like the atherectomy devices are so advanced. I mean, they're doing atherectomy and thrombectomy in combination. So these newer devices, I think, are so powerful yeah. uh, that if any embolic debris um, is released, it's immediately suctioned back into the catheter system. Yeah, and and uh, speaking of atherectomy, have you have you what's your experience with atherectomy at the common femoral? You know, with with devices like Hawk, if you want to go directional or or Rotorex now that's out, they obviously can't go six millimeters in and, and you can't differentiate going to the media versus, you know, you're sticking in the intima layer, that's yeah. for sure. But what's your experience? Do you do it at all? Do you, do you, are you just, you, that's not even on your table? Yeah, so, so I definitely have done it and, and I think yeah. I still do it to some degree, but I think it's also important to really choose the proper device if you're gonna do a common femoral um, so the rotational atherectomy devices like Rotorex, which you're mentioning, unless it's an occluded common femoral, that device, quite honestly, is not going to have a major Got effect it. because it, it can't reach the, the plow. No. Um, so you're being forced to use directional atherectomy devices like Hawk, potentially jet stream because it has, mm -hmm. you know, the cutting blades that can be released and, and CSI. A diamondback. I mean, I think those are probably the, the best options. And I've had some pretty good successes along the way. At the end of the day, it's still the important pieces are choosing the right device, choosing the right size device, and being mm -hmm. careful not to create a problem yeah. but while you're trying to solve this, this issue. Don't embolize. Um, yeah, <laughs> don't embolize. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say, right? Yeah, just don't, yeah. yeah, just don't do it, right? Just don't. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, it never happens to me, but, yeah. um, truth is, is, you know, just, just be, just be careful with it. You know, don't put a 2-0 CSI in every single common femoral artery, small yeah. patients use a smaller device. No high, high RPM, all 10, yeah. 10 passes. You know? <laughs> yeah. Don't do 10 passes and don't do these, you know, super long two minute runs either. I mean, yeah. those are going to be issues that, uh, that get created and probably are self-induced. Yeah. 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 Well, great. I mean, any, any kind of data or trials that you know right now, um, that will kind of give us a little bit more, um, like elucidate more about what endovascular versus open or, or, uh, help guide us more. Yeah. So you had mentioned before, uh, Supera and Supera and yeah. the common femoral artery. And, uh, as you're aware the there's a European trial super surge, um, mm -hmm. which is looking at, um, Supera and the common femoral artery directly against uh, common femoral endarterectomy. Um, I think it's 23 sites across three countries in Europe. They're looking to enroll about 250 or so patients. And uh, they're pretty far along the way. And it's going to be a head-to-head -head analysis of Supera versus endarterectomy. And 
uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to see what the results yeah. of that trial are going to be. Yeah. You know, I, what I worry though, is that, uh, the, the results, at least at, at one year are very good. And now we get this sudden shift to where everybody starts putting stents in the common femoral artery. And, and, and yeah, yeah, and, you're right on the money. I, I, it, I agree too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's probably what's going to happen if the results are really good. And then three years down the road, we're going to be all kicking mm -hmm. ourselves. Yeah. Um, oh, unfortunately, Sabine, and I think you know this as well. To me, most of the therapies that we do do best when you're doing multimodality therapy. Yeah. Totally. If it's SFA and you're doing atherectomy with BCB, maybe even a stent in some scenarios, that performs better than just doing POVA. Uh, and that performs better than just doing atherectomy and, and POVA. But no one's ever going to do those trials. I mean, yeah. No one's, you no can't. one's going to put up a head to head three, all those three three. that's too much. Yeah. There's no, it's no too much. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as an interventionalist, I think, you know, what works for you, you have your recipe, you know, to make the omelet. And I think you learn over time what works and what doesn't work. And, and you know how to keep things safe and everybody goes through that process. So, so the fellows that might be listening to this podcast, I will tell you, you know, not everything you learn in fellowship is what you're going to do when you finally get out and practice. Definitely learn um, what to do, but also learn what not to do. Learn from the mistakes. And you're going to make plenty of them. And, and even today, I still do. So every day is a school day here in Austin. So <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely, not, uh, we're definitely not, not done with learning at this point. Great advice to fellows. I mean, that goes to across all specialties and everything. I mean, it's true. Um, I do plenty of stuff now that I did not do you know uh are in fellowship and and i learn every single day and it's really nice having mentors um you know you work with 20 plus surgeons that are great and, and having mentors it really really helps so um as in this was great i um i think we definitely covered a lot about cfa disease anything else you'd like to mention uh, before we close up I just want to give you major props for starting this podcast. I mean, oh, yeah. I know how busy you are and, um, I've learned so much, um, from a lot of the social media sites, but also from the medical podcasts that have been set up by, you know, innovators like yourself. Uh, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to do this. You know, we're all busy. Uh, we all have, you know, very busy lives and very busy practices. And we don't have the time to sit there and read journal articles all day long. Mm -hmm. And we also don't have the time to reach out to colleagues all day long. And yeah. I think this has just been a wonderful experience for me. And I just want to give you a high five virtually for, for, <laughs> for doing this, man. Uh, thanks. Thanks. I mean, look, about the Backtable team, Aaron Fritz, all, all the hosts, our sound engineers, Karen, Caleb. It's, it's, it's been such an awesome experience for me personally, um, to be a host and, and just learn from people like you and, and, and really just spread the word. Cause I agree. I mean, the last thing I want to do is sit and, and sorry, JVIR, I don't want to sit and read a journal. You know, I got plenty of things. I'd rather listen to something or something. I, I've learned so much from people like you and all these topics. So thanks for, for the feedback. I appreciate it. Absolutely guys. Thank y'all so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, 
or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.